is here. So listen to the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's bishops, but it really is overseers is what the Greek means. Give to you, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for every remembrance of you, always in every one of my prayers for all of you, praying with joy for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to think this way because, about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For all of you are my partners in God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with tender affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what really matters What is the best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Award shows are often remembered for what went wrong. And I'm not a big fan of them, but I think thank you speeches are interesting things, right? People who do it well are memorable, right? Uh, People are funny. I I went back as I was thinking about this sermon and, and watched clips of Robin Williams, for instance, accepting his awards. And of course, he was brilliant and manic and and hilarious, right? But arguably the greatest one and most memorable thank you speech that ever happened happened on July 4th, 1939. Okay, all right, so I'm giving equal opportunity to baseball this week. Last week I did football, so now it's baseball. And I am not, but Mark is a New York Yankee fan. So this is a Yankee. Um, and I was thinking about all the stories I could, I could have talked about Mark and I, and I'm not going to share any of them because uh, I want you to keep me working here. Right? <laughs> I, was a, he, I had to do a funeral or do a gravesite yesterday, and, and he got there. He was going to get there before I did. And Laura was great to talk to him. And I said, just remember, I can kill you in your sleep if you say certain things to her. So... But uh, no, it's a great joy having Mark here. So here's a Yankee story from my brother, Mark, okay? And of course, that day uh, was the day that Lou Gehrig gave his famous speech after being tragically diagnosed with the disease that to this day carries his name. It's interesting, his abilities had started to decline during the 1938 uh, baseball season. If you go back and look at his statistics as this disease was starting to affect him, he would still be an all-star today, even with his declined health. But this great speech almost didn't happen. He was overwhelmed with emotion, and the crowd was cheering him. And he said to Coach Joe McCarthy, I don't think I can do this. And Joe said, 
the people want to hear from you. So this is the speech that you probably all know. Fans, for the past two weeks, you have been reading about the bad break I got. Yet today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of this earth. That's probably most of what we remember, right? But what he goes on to say, I think, is amazing. He said, I've been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness, encouragement from you fans. He goes on to mention his teammates, the general manager, Joe McCarthy, his manager. He thanks him, um, who they were friends. Then he ends with this paragraph. When the New York Giants, a team you would give your right arm to beat and vice versa, sends you a gift. That's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who's been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I may have had a tough break, but I have an awful lot to live for. Less than two years after this, on June 2nd, 1941, Lou Gehrig died two weeks before his 38th birthday. I think the power of the gratitude in that speech uh, still speaks (laughs) over these years. And it, it reminds you is that how important gratitude is, whether it's recognizing a gift you've received, Lou Gehrig facing a death sentence, but still finding the blessings in his life and in that day, to be actually present to this life, to be thankful for the people who've made a difference in our life, remembering the people that are precious to you, That captures the spirit of the Apostle Paul here. He's full of joy and gratitude. By the way, joy and gratitude may be two of the most underrated gifts of being followers of God. There probably should be more dancing in Christianity. Well, on second thought, maybe we just smile a little bit more. (laughs) Smile and laugh a little bit more. But if you stop and think about the gift, every, every worship service, Every time we remember the grace of God, every time we sing about it, gosh, we should just be so full of joy and gratitude for each gift of day that we have. And Paul's joy and gratitude is even more amazing because he's in prison. And this isn't some kind of prison for white-collar criminals, okay? The Roman prison system, or wherever he was, he might have been in Rome, he might have been in Ephesus, he might have been in Caesarea, but it was not the greatest conditions. Matter of fact, you only were warm if someone brought you a blanket. You only were fed if someone brought you food. So he's in prison waiting for trial. And he writes to a little community church, Philippi. The city of Philippi at this time in the first century is probably about town, 10,000 citizens, somewhere between, halfway between Manchester and Bennington, right? About that size. It was 10 miles from the Adriatic Sea. It had been named, renamed after 
Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, after he conquered it. It was a very important uh, trade route. It was on the Via Iganata, one of the great Roman roads, and you can still see part of the Roman road if you go back there today. And it was a Roman colony. Uh, it was settled multiple times by retired Roman soldiers. Um, Philippi, you may remember, is where Mark Anthony and Octavian beat um, Brutus and Cassius, and uh, where basically the Republic was destroyed. And again, I just want to remind everybody, Julius Caesar is not the hero of that story, okay? He was a genocidal tyrant, okay? Just kind of, just like to remind people how fragile republics are, okay? So Julius Caesar is not the good guy. I'm not saying there were any other good guys, but he definitely wasn't a good guy. But soldiers who won that battle for Octavian and Mark Anthony, some were retired there. And later on, when uh, Augustus Caesar defeats Mark Anthony, there are more uh, Roman soldiers retired in this Roman colony. So it, it had a, even though it was a Greek city, almost all the names associated with the Book of Philippians are Greek. It, had, it was a conservative Roman colony that was very proud of its Roman heritage. Matter of fact, there are more inscriptions archaeologically found in Philippi that honor people. You know, like I, Claudius, was the dog catcher. All right, may the gods be blessed. You know, I mean, it's kind of that level of stuff, okay? Everybody had all kinds of placards to remember themselves. So status is a very important thing in Philippi, which, by the way, Paul will have interesting ways to interact with that theme as we go through the book. It's interesting. How does Paul start the letter? I, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. So in a town very proud of its status, even in the introduction, Paul is talking about a different way of looking at what's important. Now, I also have to take a minute because one of the most reoccurring sophistries in religious circles is some version of, well, I love Jesus, but I hate Paul. Right? Don't like Paul. Um, I want to just reread you some of the things that he says. I thank God for every remembrance of you. Always in my prayers with praying with joy. It is right for me to think this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are my partners in the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for you with tender affection. This is a man with a great heart. And those are some of the most tender words spoken in the New Testament. So one of the things that I think needs to be corrected, and, you, and it's, it's prevalent everywhere, that the Jesus most people love is viewed through the grace and love-colored glasses of St. Paul. So that's one of the things, I don't know what your pre-existing or, or you know, your, your prejudicial thoughts about St. Paul are, because some of the, Paul's biggest enemies are religious critics, right? But but they are willfully wrong. And I think how we view Jesus is really colored by the power of what the Apostle Paul discovered in the grace and love of Jesus in his own life. 
And he says a prayer. He has a prayer. This is kind of where I want to focus today in our concluding thoughts. His prayer for the church of Philippi, which, by the way, is my, chair, my prayer for us as well, is that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine the best, what is best, what really matters. Paul's prayer is that we would know what is best. Sometimes in the old King James, I think it was translated, that you may know what's most excellent. Uh, The new RSV translated, that you may know what really matters. But isn't that really part of, of the task of each day? What is the best thing that I can be doing with my life? What's really important for us as a church to focus on? What matters for me this day? I remember years ago speaking to a man who had made a radical career change for the final stage of his professional life. And every phase of this guy's life had been successful. He'd been a good athlete, he went to a great college, remarkably successful in his profession. I asked you, well, why are you making a change? And he said something to this effect. He said, I don't want my obituary to be about my professional life. (laughs) I want to show that I love my family, I love God, and I care for this world in the name of Christ. That's Paul's prayer. That our loves and our intellect lead us to the higher things of Christ. Or as he says in Ephesians, speaking the truth and love is a sign of maturity. That's always going to be our two of our root um, values here. That we are going to, to think about our faith. We're going to learn our faith. But always accompanied with the love of Christ. Faith without love, I think, is dead. And saving faith is only brought to its completion through acts of love. But we need both. Love without standing on the truth of our faith becomes sentimental. And frankly, one of the reasons people, there's been mass exoduses from certain religious traditions is because we don't believe enough for people to come out instead here, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not worth the effort. But we all are seeing the effects of people who emphasize an idea about who Jesus is, but have no love in their heart. Particularly how they treat the most vulnerable people in our society. There are a lot of things that are confusing in the Bible. But we just got done spending all summer in the Minor Prophets. And they're in one voice that how you treat the poor, how you treat the oppressed, how you treat the stranger, how you treat the most vulnerable in your community indicates whether or not you believe and worship the living God. So a faith without concrete acts of love is not Christianity.
Friday night was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Um, it's the birthday of the universe. Happy birthday, universe. Uh, it's also the day when Adam and Eve were created. Okay. The wonderful thing about, about the Jewish tradition is they just keep piling things on, right? You, you don't, they don't take anything out, right? That's why this, if you do all the service, you're there for three days, right? Uh, so that's, a, that's the trouble with an old, an old faith. That's also the beauty of it, right? But it's also this idea of, of it's a time of judgment as well, right? I love this medieval prayer from Judaism. It says, the great shofar will be sounded and a still thin sound will be heard. Angels will hasten and a trembling and terror will seize them. As they say, behold, it is the day of judgment. I love this idea of the angels trembling, right? There's gravity. There's gravity to be thinking about the beginning of a new season. And, and we are beginning a new season together, right? We're celebrating uh, our life together. Again, this afternoon service is not about me. It's about us. About this journey we are on together. This joyful journey. This important journey that we are doing together. And um, Dr. Danielle Hartman, who's the president of Shalom Institute, said this beautiful thing this week um, in, a, in a podcast. He says, we are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur Jews. Because we believe that next year can be better than this one. We believe that we can learn from the past, but we are not defined solely by past, and the past certainly does not determine who we are. Who I was is not necessarily who I will be. Who I was is not necessarily who I should be. There's always a possibility of change and a better future. And that's not about being optimistic. That's about, in gratitude, recognizing that the mercies of God are new every day. I love that we have this wonderful heritage here. I love that every week we come here and we are reminded of the church triumphant, that we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. But that's not who we are now. And I know you've struggled. I mean, to me, part of this afternoon is a celebration that you're still here. And not only that we have survived, but we have a calling upon us here. God has things for us to do in this town, in this community. But I'm so grateful that he's called us to do it together. We are his family. And when I think of this congregation, I have been here longer than the Apostle Paul was with the Church of Philippi. We'll talk about it, the founding. You can look at it in Acts chapter 16. But for him to have such great affection for a group of people that he knew only a little while, for me, is a great model for, by the grace of God, what I hope that we can do together in whatever time we walk together. But it's about God. It's not about an institution, it's not about a building. It's about the grace of God in Christ being unleashed in our lives. And then we let our hearts overflow to this community. I thank God in my remembrance 
in prayers for you. And let us together with joy move into this new day that we're called to. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen. I invite you to stand.